What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. What's going on, people? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. Today, we have special guest Thomas Woods. Thomas holds a bachelor's degree in history from Harvard. He's been featured on CNBC, MSNBC, Fox News Channel, and others. He's the author of several different books, including Nullification, How to Resist Federal Tyranny in the 21st Century, and also Meltdown, a free market look at why the stock market collapsed. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks, Nate. Now, Tom, recently you gave a uh, testimony before a state legislature about COVID. Um, I want to ask you, where did you get your philosophy of government? Well, I suppose it started um, from my father, who was a blue-collar guy, a working-class guy, got his GED when he was in his 40s, so he didn't finish traditional high school. But he had some kind of common-sense street corner insights and wisdom, and he at least got me on the track of, you know, believing in something like a free society. I mean, it, it, when I was growing up, communism was still a, you know, was still dominating half the world. And he explained to me all the problems with it. But that was as far as that went. Um, he was not a pure libertarian or he wouldn't use the word libertarian to describe himself. But uh, I got exposed to I had the good fortune of being exposed to a wide range of opinions in the course of my college career, not from my professors naturally, but just from my natural curiosity looking around. And I came upon the great Murray Rothbard, and I read as much of his work as I could. I got to meet him several times, and I just kept reading in the tradition of uh, Austrian school economics and libertarianism, and took me took a while to completely convince me. I, I went a number of years where I, I didn't fully buy in into it. But by about 2001, I was pretty much fully on board. Did your father grow up in a communist nation? No, no. But but he was, you know, I grew up in the Reagan years and Reagan was very concerned about the Soviet Union and my father was a big fan of Reagan. So the the subject just came up a lot. Getting into COVID a little bit, um, what authority does the government have when it comes to viruses or um, lockdowns? What what constitutional authority do they have in regards to this? Well, I don't think it has any. I mean, so I don't think they're even claiming that it does. I, I don't think they're citing anything. I think they're saying it's an emergency. And so an emergency overrides everything. But I don't I don't think they they have any. I mean, I think um, one approach somebody might take to try to make it as compatible with freedom as possible is to say, after the fact, if it turns out that the government did something bad, then you hold them accountable for it. But for right now, it's an emergency and you have to let them do what they want. So, but I, I don't think they're even trying to claim that. Okay, so judging off of that, does that mean that the government can declare anything an emergency and implement whatever uh, policies they want? Well, when you say can they, well, it's, there's a question of what do you mean by can? I mean, they do it. <laughs> so, what, right. what, you know, whether they well, have the power, you know, whether they can legitimately do it. Now, that's the question. Whether they have were ever delegated the power that they're exercising now is the question because can they do it clearly the answer is yes because we look around they are doing it they can do it 
but I don't think they have the authority to. But the thing is, that's not even the major argument that I've been making, because I don't think that's going to convince anybody. Somebody who's terrified of this virus couldn't care less about whether there's constitutional authority. Then only only people in our echo chamber care about that. So, I mean, I'll I'll talk about it when people ask me. But it's there's I, there's no one who's afraid of this virus whose mind was changed by a constitutional argument. So to the people that are extremely worried about this virus and do want government intervention to get rid of this pandemic, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say, first of all, your health is your responsibility. It's not anybody else's. And it's selfish for you to deprive younger people who are basically not vulnerable at all of the kinds of things that normally bring them joy in order for you to feel a sense of safety. That's selfish. You have you don't have the right to do that. Uh, you should be the one who stays home and gets food delivered and stuff like that. Not them, not the entire society, just to cater to you. It's astonishing to me that people would say that it's selfish for ordinary people to want to live their lives. No, it's selfish to keep people from living their lives just to satisfy you. And that's how anyone would have looked at this up until 2020. If I had said, the rest of you can't live because it gives me a feeling of insecurity, who really would have been the selfish one there? I mean, it would have been obvious. So first of all, get off the moral superiority platform that you're on because uh, normal people aren't buying that. But secondly, are these interventions actually doing any good would be the legitimate question. I mean, what you sometimes hear is people saying, well, look at how many people have died. Okay, but the issue is, did any of the stuff we've been doing do any good? Because the number of people dead is almost is irrelevant to that question. The question is, are we doing anything that's going to prevent more people from dying? And the thing is, if you graph... You can graph it any way you like. You can graph lockdown stringency versus health outcomes. You can you can graph the introduction of mask mandates versus health outcomes. Um, you can graph social mobility, people moving around and not staying home versus health outcomes. And you don't see any clear picture emerging at all. The results are completely random. There's no there's nothing to show this this does any good. In California, of course, we know they've been locked down absurdly, particularly New, uh, uh, Los Angeles, with stay-at-home orders, and they won't even allow outdoor dining. Outdoor dining, they won't even allow. People have to wear masks when they're walking down the street. You're not going to get the virus just with a passing uh, encounter with a stranger on the street. That's not how the virus is transmitted. But they've encouraged everybody to do this sort of thing. And then you look at Florida. Florida, of course, has been officially fully open in terms of no state-imposed occupancy restrictions since September 2020. And we've had uh, no statewide mask mandate, although there are a lot of masks being worn in Florida. That's certainly true. But you can do whatever you want. I mean, I've gone to comedy shows and seen live music and done things that normal people do. You can have a wedding with 400 people at it if you want to. You can have a house party. You can do whatever you want. Now, given that Florida has one of the oldest populations in the country, it should be number one right now in, in deaths per million. It should be number one. There's, if, if all this stuff that we're being told about how to stay safe is correct, Florida should, for a million reasons, be number one. It's number 28. Like, why wouldn't that make you a little curious? Well, wait a minute. Maybe I'm giving up things that I love for absolutely nothing. And then we look at California. California has the 44th oldest population. So it's one of the youngest 
populations in the country. And its numbers are at this point comparable to Florida's and have been worse than Florida's for several months. But comparable to Florida, I mean, Florida might be in deaths per million, maybe 10% worse. But when you adjust for age, that differential more, that blasts that differential to smithereens. And now if if California were doing the best in the country, well, we'd never hear the end of it, would we? Well, that just goes to show the all these things obviously work. But when it doesn't turn out that way, we don't get anybody really asking the public health uh, so-called – who can even say that without laughing these days? Public health establishment. Why is this? Shouldn't this be the best country in the union? They, We don't even get them asking that question. Or if they ask it, the answer is hemming and hawing about, well, maybe Californians have been sneaking out to restaurants that aren't even open. You know, something like that. And by the way, we've graphed that too. We have graphs of bar attendance and restaurant attendance, California versus Florida. Florida is way up here, as you would expect, because it's legal to do it in Florida. And California is way down here. So so every excuse they try to make up, well, maybe people aren't complying. Whatever. Come on. I mean, you can measure social mobility. You can do that. You have Google data on this. Like We, we know none of these excuses are right. So what's actually happening is you're giving up things that bring you joy and that make life worth living in the first place because staying in your house all day is not why you were born. Uh, and you're doing it for nothing. And you've let people mislead you into doing this. You should be angry not making excuses for them or scouring the internet to try to find some reason that my numbers are wrong or whatever. No, knock that off. Look at what I'm saying dispassionately and understand that you've just made a big mistake and it's it's never too late to correct the mistake. Okay, I want to touch on that in a little bit. Um, but I had a quick question. When Trump implemented the national emergency orders and the states went into lockdowns, were the emergency orders responsible for the state lockdowns? Did they basically lead to the state lockdowns? Uh, I don't think so, because uh, I don't think South Dakota ever went into lockdown, so you could have avoided it. I think it was more a... Um a request like if this is an emergency and I'm asking people to for 15 days to stay put uh, but I don't think there's any force of law behind that which is why even even Joe Biden interestingly so far has not really demanded anything of the states he's made requests for people to wear masks on federal property or this or that and he's made requests of, of governors and mayors, but he hasn't actually said everybody in the United States has to wear a mask, even though he really believes in mask wearing. So it goes to show that in a federal system, even even after all the encroachments of the federal government on the states, the states still have a wide berth for independent action on this. Well, what I'm saying is once Trump uh, put those orders into place, uh, certain states went into lockdown. So I know in Florida, you know, uh, once we have a uh, public emergency or once a, an emergency has been declared, a public emergency has been declared, Florida can implement certain measures like quarantines and things like that. Yeah, but the thing is the governor can declare a public health emergency. It doesn't have to be the president. So uh, that that's why in all these states, I mean, there is still, as far as I understand, uh, DeSantis has still not lifted his own state of emergency. I, I, that's my understanding is that even though the reopening has happened, strictly speaking, he hasn't lifted that. He's done everything but, but he, I don't think he's done that. 
So can the states use the president's emergency orders as an excuse for going into lockdowns? I think they use it as lockdown. an excuse, but I don't think it's binding on them. It's still up to their own discretion as to what to do. Okay, so what do you say to people that say, well, we need to lock down. We don't want this virus to spread, you know, because I've gotten into conversations with family members that say, you know, people need to just stay in their house and um, we just need to lock it down. Uh, what are the negatives of lockdown? Well, first of all, once I mean, the, the virus was in the United States for months before anybody realized it. And at that point, even if you wanted to try a lockdown, uh, once it's spread like that, it's it would be it would be impossible to to this is I asked this of of um, Professor Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, and he said, now once the virus is in a place for a while, uh, it, it's liter- it's impossible to get to zero COVID, and and if you could, you would have you would actually have to destroy society to do it. Like you, the cost would be so prohibitively high, even a hysteric wouldn't want it. So. The, the staying at home thing, well, okay, I mean, look, you're, you're obviously ruining the mental health of kids. Everybody can see that. Every honest person, you know, who's, uh, who, who will admit what's being done to them can see that that's happening. I did a blog post called Death by Lockdown that you might link to where I went through, <clears throat> for example, all the missed cancer screenings. Uh, they're estimating maybe 60,000 unnecessary cancer deaths in the U.K. alone from that. Uh, because they they postponed things like cancer screenings or they terrified people into not coming into the hospital. Well, okay, there's an infinitesimal chance you'd get COVID, but if you have cancer, that's a death sentence for sure. And in that case, you're not going to see those deaths immediately. They're not going to drop dead from cancer instantly, but it means that instead of living another 20 years, they might live another three to five. So those will be invisible deaths caused by COVID. The New York Times reports uh, over 2 million unnecessary deaths from malaria, HIV, and tuberculosis because of missed vaccinations uh, because of this. So because of because of uh, disrupted supply chains, there is risk of starvation posed to approximately 130 million people around the world because of these um, uh, because of lockdowns and, and uh, supply chain disruptions. The developing world, of course, has just gotten literally killed by this. Uh, what 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 possible reason would they have to if you're a country that's living hand to mouth where most of your people in order to survive for a day have to work and that day spend their money to survive and then get on to the next day if they can't work they just they just die i mean that's it they just die you would have to be a deranged lunatic to say well they need to lock down no they don't nope they don't that would be terrible uh and and you can go on and on i mean there are deaths of despair caused by alcohol and drug overdoses, not to mention suicide. Um, I, so in that, in that uh, death by lockdown post, I just go through uh, category after category of ways that this is killing people, impoverishing them. People are ruining the things that give their lives meaning. I mean, again, staying alive is not the only value we have. I mean, that's clearly true. I mean, only a coward values life over everything else. If somebody's coming to attack your child and you say, well, sorry, I got to stay home and stay safe, uh, Johnny, so uh, I wish I could help you, but I can't, uh, we would have contempt for you. You're a a terrible person who doesn't understand the point of life. Well, likewise, I could, I'm sure, live a reasonable life if I were in a windowless room for 75 years eating cans of dried navy beans, okay, you know, with no human contact. I mean, I'd stay alive. But nobody in his right mind would want that. 
Not to mention what's happened to the elderly even in a lot of these facilities. What, they have to see their grandkids through a window or over Zoom? And this is and and they we've had numerous reports of mainstream sources of of uh, of elderly people just dying, just dying from there's almost no other way to put it dying from loneliness because of the cruelty of these policies. So, yeah. And, and by the way, you know, there's a country that you'd never guess that's had zero covid deaths. And that country is Cambodia. Wow. Now, stop and think about that for a minute. Are we supposed to believe that Cambodia did so well against the virus because they just have the most sophisticated public health establishment in the world? Cambodia? Are you kidding me? Obviously, there's something about this virus we don't fully understand that can account for how how it could be that in East Asia, no matter what policy they implement, whether it's laissez-faire like Japan, I mean, they were people were screaming that Japan was going to get pummeled because they didn't lock down properly and they didn't do this or that. Japan has like nothing. I mean, their their death rate is extremely low. And yes, there are very severe lockdown East Asian countries too. But as Jay Bhattacharya puts it, what we're faced with here is policy invariance. No matter what these countries do in East Asia, whether it's severe lockdown or laissez-faire, the results are good, no matter what. Now, there's no one in the American public health establishment who can explain to you why that is. Not one of them has the slightest bit of curiosity about it from what I can see. But what they like is the idea that we can blame people for the virus. It's your fault if people die. And if you had just stayed home, you'd have – if you had stayed – if you had followed the expert advice of Cambodia, we would – who's supposed to believe this? We have counterexamples all over the world of people not doing these things, and their results are no worse. Are they wearing masks in Cambodia? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But I mean, like the average person in rural Cambodia probably doesn't even know what, what the hell's going on, <laughs> right? right? But it, what's interesting is that in Sweden, which is like uh, more than two dozen countries down the list of, of death rate, uh, in Stockholm, you have mass compliance somewhere between 5 and 10%. Now, if, if masks are as crucial as we've been told, Sweden should be the number one death country, shouldn't it? I mean, they, they have appalling if you're really concerned about masks, levels of compliance, like nothing, nothing. They're not masked and they're not the number one death uh, place. Not, not at all. Why should that be? No curiosity. Zero. You ask the average person about that. No curiosity. They block you. I don't even want to know. I just want to do what I'm being told, even if it doesn't work. Okay. Now, what's your take on masks? Are there any studies about the effectiveness of masks and um, populations that don't wear masks compared to populations that do? Well, uh, there are some studies and, uh, you know, and and that that show uh, results for both sides of this thing. And then you look at them, you say, well, maybe this one is making an assumption. That's so to me as a layman, I'm not even bothering trying to figure out which of the studies are right and which ones are wrong. I just want to see real world results. I want a practical answer, not that some theoretical paper says that they should work. I want to see in reality, do the numbers come down after masks are imposed on the public? That's what I want to see. Because we've been told that by the head of the CDC, not the the head now, but Robert Redfield last year said that if we would just wear masks from anywhere between four and eight weeks, 
And we did that consistently for two months, this thing would come right down. Well, mass compliance in the US has been at above 90% for probably half a year at least. So we've disproved that. That was a total BS thing for him to say. We've disproved it. Now, the, if masks were that significant that they could bring the thing down and even be more important than a vaccine, according to Robert Redfield, then we should see that coming through. And people say, oh, but there are a lot of factors at work as to why there are a certain number of cases or deaths in a particular place. It's not just masks. I understand that. But if masks are that significant, the mask effect should blow away all competing factors. And it should be clear and unambiguous in the charts. And it just isn't. You can't tell. You can look at you can look at all the European countries you want. You look at Spain, Austria, Germany, Italy, Belgium, the UK, on and on. And I'll show you their their graph. And then you uh, you tell me where their mask mandate went into effect. And it'll you'll you'll never be right. You'll be wrong every time, because it's always random in the course of the of the pandemic. It's always random where masks are introduced. Uh, the results don't seem to reflect anything. Uh, the cases overall in the U.S. look like this, and mass compliance looks like this. So, so that's to say, big squiggly line, and then on top, mass compliance is just a straight line. There's just no, there's no connection. And then there are several states that recently just got rid of their mask mandates. Now, when Texas got rid of its mask mandate, everybody went hysterical, everyone's going to die, you're all going to get sick. Uh, okay, well, Montana got rid of its uh, mandate, uh, Mississippi, North Dakota, um, and and then you look at them, and I'm pretty sure in Montana and North Dakota, the uh, hospitalizations since this have come down 75 and 47 percent respectively. Now, if it were reversed, if it were reversed, we would be told it was specifically because they got rid of the masks. That's why hospitalizations went up. You know that. That's what we would be told. But when the opposite occurs, they don't say, hmm, maybe we've been looking at this too simplistically. There must be more to it than just masks. No, they ignore it or they say, oh, it would have been better even if we had the mask. Whatever. It's always some excuse, always an excuse. It's never a soul searching. It's never a maybe I got this wrong. Never, never. Now, would you say most people believe what the media is saying about the virus, or would you say most people are skeptical? Uh, I think there are about 35 to 40 percent that are absolutely convinced. There's a there's a middling group that is skeptical but is afraid to say so because they know what happens to you. You know, you're, you're they try to ruin your reputation and portray you as a terrible person, even though they're the terrible people. Uh, they they robbed everybody of a year of their lives for nothing. And they, they weren't even curious enough to, to bother to check to see if it was doing any good. They just knew a priori that this must be right, even though this was never the recommended pandemic preparation ever. Uh, they just knew a priori it must be right because a, a man who's been put on a pedestal by politicians is telling us that it must be right. So therefore, it's right. And any dissenting voices are just heretics to be uh, ignored. Um, I'm sorry, I got off on a tip. Remind me what you what you asked me. No, no, no I was asking, um, you know. Do you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, and there's definitely a hard core of people who are not buying into it, uh, but probably not enough to support a lot of these restaurants that are getting killed because people won't go out anymore. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just heartbreaking. Every time I go out, uh, I I leave a much higher tip than I normally would just to help them get through it, just to 
power through this? I would say for the most part, the majority of people I talk to believe in the mainstream information that we're being given as far as the masks, um, lockdowns, vaccines, and social distancing is concerned. Um, Very rarely do I come across someone that has a contrary belief and um, doesn't buy into the information that we're being given. They haven't seen the charts. All I can say is they haven't seen the charts. Once you look at the charts, you can never unsee them. So that's what somebody actually suggested this to me. And I don't know why I hadn't thought of it on my own. Um, you know, you know, I release free ebooks all the time. But I thought I need something that takes a lot of these charts that I've been sending out to my email subscribers and just put them side by side in one place instead of scattered over 100 emails. And so I did recently release an ebook called CN, uh, called COVID Charts CNN Forgot. And that really smashes this. I mean, you send that to your friend and see what they say. But I put that up at chartstheyforgot.com. It doesn't cost anything, but it's really valuable because once they see these charts, it's, yeah, they'll pretend that they don't believe it or something, but that's never going to leave their brains. It's it's always going to be nagging at them. Yeah. You have the best domain names, by the way. Now, does the government have any authority to distribute a vaccine and should we trust the government with medicating us? Well, the U.S. government doesn't have that power, is never delegated to it. So, you know, that's that. (laughs) There's there's no there's no delegated power. There's nothing listed in the Constitution about this. Right. How would how how were uh, pandemics handled in the past? Um. Well, I mean, it was more or less left up to states and and individuals to make their own decisions. I mean, there was a there was a pandemic going on in 1969. Uh, uh, the um, and Woodstock still went on with people side by side. You know, it still went on. A hundred thousand people died that year. Uh, I think that was the Hong Kong flu. Uh, back when it was it was okay to call it the Hong Kong flu in those days. Uh, people just made up their own minds as to what their risk tolerance was. Now, I've gotten into a lot of intense discussions with family members, friends, et cetera. And I know people that have had the same discussions with their um, family and friends. And there's been a lot of spirited discussions and very intense debates. Um, And I know people that have consumed more alcohol than usual um, since the pandemic. Some people have gained weight. You know, some people have gotten um, depressed. Um, But why do you think that people continue to buy the mainstream information that's given to us um, by the news, despite seeing some of the outcomes um, from the recommendations that we are given by by the mainstream? Some of it's social pressure. Um, A lot of it is, um, you know, people just don't have the stones to go against what most people think. They just don't. They love to congratulate themselves on what individuals they are. And don't be afraid to be different. No, no, no. No, the message is be afraid to be different. (laughs) You know, uh, that definitely is the message. Be afraid to be different. Um, You can be different in socially approved ways. That's that's for sure. You know, so... um, LGBT stuff. That's great. That's socially approved difference. But and, and you'll be celebrated for that. But if we haven't approved the kind of different that you want to be, <laughs> you know I mean, like what <laughs> you have to approve the kind of different that I want to be. So most people just won't go. They want to be in the cool crowd. They just do. They, they don't have the, the stamina, frankly, the moral stamina 
to withstand it. And, and, and also they don't, they don't bother looking things up for themselves. They just don't. Right. They just, and you think you would think this would, this would jolt them into it. Like you just had things that you were looking forward to things that are why you're on this planet taken away from you. You'd think you'd start poking around saying, well, huh, maybe this thing isn't as dangerous as they say. Let me go take a look. There's plenty of information out there. They haven't even bothered to find it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of us don't read. We don't really research. Um, we just look at things on the surface and we don't really dig deep enough as we should. Um, and we can be very compliant as a, as a society. Um, now, changing topics a little bit um, in regards to these executive orders that Biden has been um, passing, are executive orders constitutional? Well, it depends on what they're what they're doing. I mean, in strictly speaking, an executive order is uh, is just a, an order from the president directing some executive agency to do a certain thing. So, uh, so a pardon, for example, is issued by means of an executive order. Well, no one disputes that that's constitutionally acceptable because uh, that's right there in the Constitution, the pardoning power. Or when George Washington. George Washington asked for a report on the state of the country from the outgoing uh, Confederation government as, as through, but through executive order. Well, I mean, nobody would say, oh, what a terrible abuse of George Washington's power. The problem comes when when uh, executive orders are used as a substitute for legislation on on controversial topics where it's thought that the uh, maybe the legislature won't approve. Now, it's true that an executive order can be reversed by an act of Congress. Uh, but the thing is that a lot, a lot of times inertia develops. You know, some, some, a policy goes into effect. People get used to it. You know, and, and so, yeah, yeah, it could be reversed. Uh, I believe that happened in uh, World War II where uh, Franklin Roosevelt briefly tried to get the top marginal income tax rate up to approximately 100%. And that was they struck that down. Now, you've also written on topics like uh, government health care and Medicare, Medicaid, things like that. And I know you don't consider them to be constitutional um, from your perspective, but um, how do you respond to people that say, well, Tom, you don't care about the elderly. And, um, you know, if they can't take care of themselves, um, you would just be fine with it. How do you respond to that? Well, I respond by saying we have to care about everybody in the country. And I also care about young people. Young people apparently in our country can just be thrown to the wolves. That seems to be the rule. Um, because older people have said, for me to be safe, I have to ruin my grandchildren's lives. And not all of them. A lot of them have been heroic through this and said, look, I'm not even asking you people to do this for me. And I wish you wouldn't. Um, the non-selfish approach is to say, old people like me are supposed to make sacrifices for their children. That's how it's supposed to work. Not, sorry kids, you can't have the, the beautiful memories I had as a young person. You have to stay home um, to make me safe. No, sorry, no non-selfish person says that. Now in terms of these programs, the problem is that they're a, a bad deal for young people. If you wanna let the young people opt out of them, uh, that would be a great start. But you look at what the accounting data tells us about them, and if a program has if a program is, you know, in like hundreds of trillions of dollars in the, I don't, I haven't followed it in, in over 10 years, but it was, it was hugely well over a hundred trillion dollars that, uh, 
Medicare alone was in the hole over time in terms of unfunded liabilities into the into the future. That this, I mean, it's not a matter of I'm not being compassionate. It's that you can't do that. You can't possibly accomplish that. Now, I I just did an episode of the Tom Woods Show, uh, episode 1853, on what's called direct primary care. Uh, medical care. This is where a doctor's office doesn't deal with Medicare or the government and also doesn't deal with third-party insurance. It just bills you directly. And you think, oh, well, this must be very expensive. All right, well, again, that shows how uncreative most people have become. What these practices normally look like is as follows. For $75 a month, um, you get 25 office visits per year. When was the last time you remember going to the doctor 25 times, right? But you get 25 office visits per year, $25 per visit after that. Uh, you get dramatically lower uh, prescription drug costs, sometimes as, as, as low as um, 10% of what you would pay otherwise. Your lab, your, your, your blood work and your labs are about 5% of what you would pay normally. Uh, you get uh, all kinds of screenings, testing. You, get, you can get minor surgeries done. You get stitches. All these things are included in the membership, included in the membership, $75 a month. And so it's like Costco. You, you join and then you get all the benefits. Well, this is happening now all over the, all 50 states have at least somebody doing direct primary care. I just checked and in my area, uh, there's a, a woman who just converted her practice into direct primary care two months ago and is very excited about it. This revolutionizes things. So we've already got, if we put more people would follow it, in effect, physicians, there's a website, atlas.md, not atlasmd.com, atlas.md, that shows you how to convert your medical practice into direct primary care. That, that innovation, just on its own, makes, makes the, the prices go to rock bottom. Well, then you say, okay, well, what about surgeries, though? Okay, maybe it would be great to get these other things down low, but surgeries are, are what's going to get you. Well, then, again... Part of what's great about direct primary care is that there's transparency on prices. I mean, you notice that in healthcare, there is it's prices are completely opaque. Nobody knows what the price of any procedure is when they go in there. No one knows or cares. Their insurance will pick it up, or they they don't even know. Uh, you, you don't do that when you buy a book or a musical instrument or a car. Or, everything is already spelled out. A house. This, this is there's something crazy about this this uh, particular part of the economy and. This the whole reliance on third party insurance and stuff. This all got started during World War II because of a government program. But that's a separate. I don't even want to get into that right now. The point is, there's a place in Oklahoma, and they're not alone anymore, called uh, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and it's run by Keith Smith and um, uh, well, the other guy's name is Lantier. I can't remember his first name, but. The key thing about the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is they post their prices on their website. You need this kind of procedure done, it's going to cost you this much money. You need this much done, it's going to cost you this much money. And so people can can decide, wait a minute, do I need to literally go to India, which is what some people have been doing, because it would cost me less to fly all the way to India and have the procedure done there and fly all the way back than it would have it done in the U.S. Uh, but just the mere transparency and the idea that we're going to compete for your business keeps their prices super low, even for even for surgeries. So now when you get them that low, prices that low, well then think about all the ways um, people, I mean, 
there are we could we could solve the rest of it through through just a philanthropy. We, we would now be down to so little money, we we would solve the rest of it through philanthropy. And right now, in a, in a, in effect, when you think about where people donate their money. The existence of these government programs is subsidizing all these other things people donate their money to. Some of them are very frivolous. But if people realize, well, look, it's up to me to make sure that people are cared for. When I have extra money, I'm going to donate it to that because that's that's more urgent than some of the other things that I donate money to. Um, but as soon as people are told, oh, don't worry, this is all being handled by the government. Well, they, okay, well, then I guess I don't need to do anything. Okay, I, I gave at the IRS. I don't, I don't need to do anything. I don't, first of all, I don't think that's a good attitude for people to have. I think that's totally destructive spiritually. Uh, but secondly, as I say, by using these simple methods to, to actually bring the cost down dramatically, you wouldn't have a, a big problem of, well, gee, would people donate enough money? Yeah, sure they would, because the, the cost of the program is 5% of what it used to be. Sure they would. Okay. Uh, How much time do you have left? A few minutes. Okay. Um, all right. Let me see. Uh, recently, Biden uh, struck Syria. Is that an impeachable offense? Well, there was no congressional authorization sought, and certainly, I mean, to me, that that would be. Now, they they claim that the um, the War Powers Act of of um, 1973, I think, which was which was billed as something that was supposed to constrain the president, uh, because it says that you know after 60 days he has to give a, a, a reporting to Congress about what he's been up to. But the problem is that for the first time gave him statutory authority to intervene for 60 days, you know? So that's not a limit. That's an expansion of the power of the president. Uh, but the, the point is even that was unconstitutional. That, that particular provision of it was unconstitutional. So yeah, to my mind, it, uh, it, it is because you are supposed to get congressional authorization for something like that. Uh, either a declaration of war or some kind of lesser authorization of some kind, as has been the, the practice uninterrupted since the early republic. And every example that people come up with to try to counter me, well, John Adams did so-and-so, Thomas Jefferson did so-and-so, they always consulted Congress. So that's, that's nonsense. They did. James Madison asked for a declaration of war for the War of 1812, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, all the way through the 19th century, with very, very, very minor exceptions, like chasing a handful of cattle rustlers over the Mexican border. Order. I mean, I'm sorry, that does not constitute. Uh, that's not exactly World War Two. Right. Yeah. I was thinking the other day, you know, if um, if Trump can be impeached for um, inciting a riot, as they say, um, surely you know Biden can be impeached for dropping a bomb on us. Yeah, but see, the thing is, both parties know they want to do that. So if they right. impeach one, they'd have to impeach the other, and so they'd rather just wink at each other and keep doing it. Right, exactly. And again, the American public has no interest in that. They've been told that this is fine, and that's enough for them. Yeah, exactly. Where do you see this country headed? I know that's a broad. Well, di- well division. I mean, if not, if not in you know uh, in a form of secession, radical division. I, I think we'll be on different social media platforms, um, getting our news from different sources increasingly. I think people, especially after being told their grandma killers, whatever, I think people are going to choose their friends a lot more carefully and in, in a, a way that's more ideological. So I think there will be a kind of a, 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 um, a hostility 
Mm-hmm. sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken, between two large masses of people. And I don't know where that goes, but, you know, Lincoln said a house divided itself cannot stand. Well, that it wasn't originally his quote, but I mean, he's famous in U.S. history for having said a house divided itself against itself cannot stand. Well, this is a major, major division. And so who knows what the outcome is? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I think I, I'm, there has to be a healthy division. Um, you're not always going to have people that agree with you. And Yeah, but this is way different from that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously some people think blue is a better color than red or something. You know, yeah, you can have or, or they like different kinds of music or they think taxes should be a little higher than they. That's one thing. But this is you're a horrible person for not staying in your house or you want to read that book and that means you should get fired or you said this one thing and that means we should ruin your life. That That's very different. Yeah. Well, I think the people that claim they want unity, it seems, um, are the ones that are willing to divide themselves. And, um, you know, I had a friend that would uh, we, we, he would he would get into conversation with me about Trump and I would tell him, you know, I'm not really a Trump supporter, but he would always accuse Trump of racism. And I would say, well, you know, I can't I don't see any like real hard examples of him being a clear racist. So we would just go back and forth about that. But I said, if you want to, you know, critique Trump on foreign policy and other policies, I mean, let's go because I can, you know, I can definitely uh, attack him on that. But he just kept sticking to race, 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 race. And then it got to a point where he said, well, you know, I don't know if we can continue this relationship. And, you you know, I don't think um, it's safe for you to be around my children. This is a guy I've known for years. Gosh. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we we don't speak anymore. And I was always trying to change the conversation, you know, just to keep the friendship going. But, you know, that's where we we are. But here's a... You don't repeat what's in the New York Times, so that's very dangerous. Right? You don't repeat what the the spooks in the CIA want you to think, and you don't repeat what the 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 the, the news reporters want you to think, and you you don't repeat. You know, okay, <laughs> I guess I don't, because I, I I guess I was I, I still believe in the old left wing slogan: question authority. Uh, I, I I guess I I didn't notice when that became shut up and obey. Right. Yeah. But, you know, that's an example of a person saying that they want unity and they're all about equality. But yet you're willing to just cut me off because we have a difference of opinion on you know, this person's mentality or whatever. Um, what would you say the most influential books on government and libertarian philosophy? Well, I'll just give you one because that way maybe people will read it. It's short. But it packs a punch. It says everything that you kind of need to hear if you're just getting into this. And that is The Revolution by Ron Paul. There it's all laid out. Economics, foreign policy, the Constitution, money. Um, The paperback edition has a chapter on the financial crisis of 2008, what caused that. It's – that's it. That's it in a nutshell. If you if you can absorb and understand that, you can you can take on anything. Absolutely. I remember reading that book years ago. Now, where can people go to read about the charts you mentioned earlier and resources about the pandemic? And yeah. Also your- yeah. Go to uh, chartstheyforgot.com. That's that's the thing to do. Chartstheyforgot.com. That is the you will be so happy you listen to me on this. Trust me. Thanks a lot, Tom. I definitely want to continue this conversation in the future, but uh, I appreciate you um, coming on to the show and thanks for all your work. Thank you very much.